Okay. So today we're going to start by talking about the politics behind this. What are what event are we getting set up for? The war. The Civil War. We're getting ready. You're going to see how this comes. So here's the plan. This is the the kind of overall plan. We finish. Um, this is the last thing on kind of antebellum slavery. This. Then we go in and we do, um, we spend a little bit of time on the West, moving West um, before the Civil War. Then we do our test. Well, moving West before the Civil War. So we, we have Texas. We don't talk about Texas in great detail, except Texas gives us a great chance to look at historical memory. So we look at the historical memory of David Crockett, um, more popularly known as Davy Crockett, uh, a name he was not fond of himself. Uh, so we're going to look at how he was portrayed uh, when he was alive, by himself. Um, after he died, we'll look at three different movies. We'll watch some movie clips about him and see how the historical memory changed. Uh, the expectations of what he was like change over time. Hey, and then the test, so. Good, so this is the end of the slavery thing, for now. For now, we have to briefly revisit it at the beginning of the Civil War, of course. Um, and today's all about politics. So, looking at this map in the 1800s, I ask you on question one, from the early days, slavery was an issue. What was the most important political balance? That is the balance between free states and slave states. At the time of the American Revolution, there was a worldwide movement that had plenty of American leaders uh, with the idea that slavery was bad. And so you started to see an increasing number of abolitionists uh, in Europe, they started to outlaw slavery. In America, they started to be more of a push towards outlawing slavery. And so the South did not want the North to get enough people, especially in the Senate, to override slavery and to do away with it. And that's really the answer to number two. Why is that balance the core issue? Because the South was afraid of losing slavery. Now let's pause here for just a sec. We've already talked about it, but it's worth repeating because it would make a great essay question on the test. Uh, yay, so it's worth repeating. Um, why is the South obsessed with slavery? What does it represent to them? To them, it's the American dream. It's the Southern dream, right? You're going to live in the big old plantation. So even those who don't own slaves see this as the culmination of hard work and American industry and whatever. So, yeah, well put. Well put. So keep that, keep that in your head. Be ready to explain that. So that's the balance. That's what they want. Now they start to have issues looking at number three down here. What issue threatened the balance? It was Louisiana. 
Hey, let's say, looking at this map, let's say that we are just going to extend slavery along the line that it kind of exists all the way into the West. Louisiana Territory, would that have more free states or slave states? It would have more free states. Simply put, it's fatter in the North. In the North, it's super fat. So there'd be more, more free states. So expanding this, this is going to be an issue. Do we make all of those free states? If we do, are they going to undo slavery? The South is worried. It bothers them. So in 1820, how are we going to solve this? Here's the second part of number three. The state of Missouri, or Missouri wants to be admitted as a state. You can see it right there. They would be a slave state. The North is a little worried about the South having too much power too. So what are they going to do? Enter this dude named Henry Clay. Henry Clay at that time was the Speaker of the House of Representatives. And he had this idea, let's compromise. This compromise is pretty simple. We're going to put in one slave state, so we're going to add one free state. So they add Missouri as a slave state, and they add Maine as a free state. Compromise of 1820. Henry Clay, doesn't he look dashing in there? Yeah. Okay, 1820 is one of those dates you should know just because of this compromise. Hey, sound good? So this next issue doesn't appear to be about slavery, but you're going to see what it has to do with it in, at the end with a dude. It's going to pop up. So at this time, so we're 1830s now. 1830s. The president of the United States is a dude named Andrew Jackson. What do you know about Jackson? Or what do you remember? I know you know lots of things. You just, I don't know if you remember that you know lots of things. He is not an abolitionist. He's a slave owner. He's a southerner. So you're right. Good. What else do you know about him? He was super, super into the status quo. Yeah, like things should kind of stay the way they are. Yeah. He did. He was kind of a dueler and a, like, you answer that with threats of violence. Uh, do you know what his career was? Do you remember? He was a general. In the War of 1812, he was an award-winning general. Uh, did really well against the British, particularly in the Battle of New Orleans, or Narlands, if you prefer. So Jackson's president, the vice president, is a dude named John C. Calhoun. And Calhoun is, if you picture a movie character, like if we made a cartoon about the South before the Civil War, and you have the plantation owner with that big heavy drawl, and the suit and the cane, that's John C. Calhoun. That's kind of what he looked like, even. Okay, so you have Calhoun there. 
doing his, he's the, he's the vice president. So set this up, get us ready for the nullification crisis. La Sorry, I forgot. Last thing about the nullification crisis is how a tariff works. Do you guys know how a tariff works? What a tariff? No, don't have a clue what this is. So let's say that somebody in the United States is making, well, this example has towels. They make towels. It costs them about $12 to make them. And so they sell them for like $14.50 or whatever. They make a little bit of a profit. Another country, let's say Vietnam, has cheaper labor. So they can make the towels much cheaper. So they can sell them much cheaper. So what a tariff does is it's a tax on the goods coming from another country. So they would add a tax to the towels. If Vietnam can make them for $2 and ship them over here for $2, then they add a $10 tax on that. So in the end, the towel from Vietnam costs $12, just like the towel from the United States. Tariffs are not popular. It, it would be hard for you to find a economist in the current United States who's going to be like, oh yeah, tariffs. That is where it's at. Uh, it might be easier to catch the actual Santa Claus as he comes into your house on Christmas Eve. Uh, it's just... It's, you did it. You oh good, good for you. <laughs> yeah. Well, so here's what actually happens with the tariff. What what usually ends up happening is that they create a tariff, and it drives up prices in ways people didn't expect. So if you do a tariff on iron, say coming in, into the United States, you you increase the tax on iron you don't realize that that's going to increase the cost of a bunch of other things that you didn't mean to increase the cost of. So you do a tariff on iron, you're going to increase the cost of automobiles and housing and uh, railroads and everything that ships via railroads and stainless steel forks. And, and it's going to affect a whole bunch of industries that you don't mean it to affect in a really negative way. So, well, actually... Um, Ignore most of this slide, but just look at the graph. When World, not World War I, after World War I, when the United States started struggling, uh, Senator Smoot and Senator Hawley decided that the best thing they could do was to create a tariff. And so they did, it's called the Hawley-Smoot Tariff in 1930. This took what was an economic problem and turned it into an economic disaster. Essentially, it caused the Great Depression. This is why economists tend to not be fa fans of tariffs, because they have negative results. Workers are often fans of tariffs because it only they only feel like it impacts their one industry. But you'll notice as we come into like the modern era, we just don't do a lot of tariffs. It's just not a thing that we do. Hey, so 1828. Some people in the North want a tariff. It passes Congress. In the South, they call it the Tariff of Abominations. 
In the North, they just call it the Tariff Act of 1828. It is up to 50% tariff on some imported goods. And it just so happens that they're the same goods that the South desperately needs for their economy. So the South gets really upset. Oh, I'll pause and let you write before I go on. I don't want you to be lost. Okay, so the South sees this tariff as an attack on their way of life. And so they decide to try something called nullification. And I think I can actually explain this better using an example from modern Utah. Are you guys familiar with the, the vast metropolis of Laverkin? Laverkin... Vast Metropolis is a joke. It's like the size of Bear River City. Okay, it's, it's this teeny tiny place. You, a lot of you have been through it, though. If you go to Na Zion National Park, there's two ways to get off the interstate and go there. One is south, kind of by St. George in Washington, Utah. You go up, and it's lovely. One is on the north end. If you take the north exit to Zion National Park, both still land you in Springdale. I don't mean the, the far north one that only campers use, but but the other north one, you drive through Laverkin. Now, a few years ago, Laverkin decided that the United Nations was terrible. So the city council of Laverkin passed a law outlawing officials from the United Nations from doing any official UN stuff in Laverkin. That is, this happened. Yes, this is true. Now, you're confused. Like, why would this be? For, to answer the questions that are kind of obvious, no, UN officials never do anything in Laverkin. It's Laverkin. This is not, this is not a hotbed of UN activity. Right? New York City, if they did something like that, would have an impact. Second, some of you had me for political science. Do you happen to remember why you can't do this? I didn't think you would, but... Good. There is a clause in the Constitution called the Supremacy Law. Supremacy Clause. So in the Constitution itself, that says that if a local law or a state law and a national law ever compete, the national law takes supremacy. It wins. So we couldn't convince the state of Utah to allow us to, say, kidnap people or, uh, you know, murder or whatever. whatever. It's, it's illegal at the federal level. It's illegal here, too. Um, so Laverkin actually legally can't really do this. How come no one's done anything because it doesn't matter? Like, uh, Laverkin can declare themselves a UN free zone and it doesn't, it doesn't impact anything. It, it doesn't matter at all. They've also declared that you can't enforce gun laws, federal gun laws inside of Laverkin. 
that one might come to a head at some point, but if it comes to a head, supremacy clause says federal law wins. Uh, your local sheriff can't override it. So we're there. Do you get what it's saying? So here's what Leverkin tried to do. They tried to nullify federal law, the federal treaty with the United Nations inside their city. Nullify means to make it null, void, so it has no effect. So this is South Carolina's answer. This is what South Carolina decides to do with the tariff of 1828. They're going to nullify it. They just say, hey, this is not a tariff inside South Carolina. It doesn't count. And so you can't collect it. Now first, can they do that? No, not really. No, because of the what? Supremacy Clause. So no, it doesn't really work. But it's based on this, this theory. Well, these facts, really. When the United States was formed, each state had and still has a degree of sovereignty. That's why it's called the United States. States means nation. Each one is supposed to govern itself and be totally different. The founders had no issue with if Utah wants to do what we do in Utah and outlaw something that other people like, um, we do that here and California can do whatever California wants to do and we'll just be here. Someone who wants to, Utah's laws will move to Utah. Someone who wants California's laws will move there. They had no issue with that. And so that's the theory behind this, that South Carolina is really uh, one of the nations, one of the independent nations that created the overarching nation of the United States. So because they created it, the United States can't tell them what to do. Now, do you remember what I told you about Andrew Jackson? What was his career? He's a general. You ever hear the phrase, to a hammer, everything looks like a nail? To a general, everything looks like a time to attack. And so Andrew Jackson's answer, and by the way, Vice President Calhoun actually wrote the nullification idea. Um, he didn't sign it, but he wrote it. So Andrew Jackson's idea is that we're going to force everybody to pay this tax. So he convinces Congress to pass this bill called the Force Bill, the Force Act. And the Force Act authorizes the U.S. military to go in and forcefully collect this tax. It's the mid-1830s. Now, where have we seen a national leader before try to get the military to collect a tax? Yeah, good. Boston, King George, how'd it go? <laughs> there was a tea party and then something about a rebellion, a revolution, and our own country, right? It didn't go well. But Jackson, is he's a cocky son of a gun. So he refuses to back down. He's right. This is the way it's going to be. So South Carolina is like, you know what? Maybe we'll just form our own country. And it looks like everything's going to fall apart. If only somebody could come in and compromise. No, here's Henry Clay again. 
They call Henry Clay the great compromiser because he was really great at compromising. He had gone back to his home state, and I forget what that was. He was born in Virginia. But I want to say he was a representative of Kentucky. But it, no, so he is no longer the Speaker of the House of Representatives. So they kind of pull him in special for this purpose. Hey, Henry, can you save us again? He says, yeah. So they pass a better tariff, one that makes more sense, that isn't quite so over the top. And South Carolina agrees to repeal their nullification bill. They pass another nullification bill right after, but everyone ignores that and pretends it didn't happen because they don't want a war. So, civil war averted again. No wonder they call this dude the great compromiser. The Civil War almost happened. Step three, here's another date for you, 1850. We once again have some new land coming. We're going to talk about how the U.S. gained this uh, later this week and next week. It's called the Mexican Session, 1848. U.S. gets a bunch more land. This is in the south, so you could grow cotton, except for what? Why is this not good cotton-growing territory? It's so dry. Yeah, as a matter of fact, there are some experiments with cotton. Brigham Young pushed some. Um, they could grow it, but it's just too dry. Like you have to irrigate the crap out of everything. So it's not going to work that well. So slavery is not going to spread into this section that well either. So what do we do? Well, there's three ideas for what to do with these territories. Calhoun, do you remember who that was? By the way, not going to test you on Calhoun. Huh? He was the vice president before. Now he's a senator. But yep, that's the same guy. He says that because the Constitution says that U.S. citizens could carry their property into any territory, slavery is therefore legal in every territory, period. Wilmot says the opposite. He creates this document he calls the Wilmot Proviso that says, hey, no, slavery should be illegal in all U.S. territories because it wasn't specifically authorized by Congress. And then this other dude you may have heard of named Stephen Douglas starts pushing the idea of popular sovereignty. What that means is they're going to let the people of each territory vote on whether they're going to be a slave territory or a free territory. <coughs> hmm? Let the people vote. Terrible idea. going to lead to a bunch of blood. Anyone know? State-wise, it was always a free state because we were later. But territory, as a territory, was Utah a slave territory or free territory? It was a slave territory. It was a slave territory. There were a total of, if I remember the number right, I might not, 36 African-American slaves in the state of Utah. There was about 200 free black people in the state. 
not state territory. That's why I emphasized that earlier. Um, but yeah, they voted. Remember, Utah included most of what's now Nevada, Utah, and Colorado. And so it did have an impact here. Not a huge one, but a huge one on those 36 people. Great question, by the way. Hey, so they bring Henry Clay out of retirement. Because who could possibly be better? And he comes up with this thing that's going to postpone the Civil War by 10 years. So, yeah, I mean, I, yeah. We should probably pull him back again. We could probably use him again today. So, and he's a name, you should know Henry Clay. Like, I know you've probably never heard of him before, but he's a name that you ought to, you ought to be familiar with, Henry Clay. Okay, so California is going to come in as a free state. This is, the balance is just going to be off. There's going to be more free states, period. They're going to put popular sovereignty in the territories. And I didn't mean to hit that button. Sorry. Washington, D.C., they want to stop the slave trade. They're not going to stop slavery, but they're going to stop slave trade in the nation's capital. And they pass a very strict fugitive slave law. The Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 essentially means anybody who helps an escaped slave is committing a felony. It also gives the authority for people from the South to come up into the North and take suspected escaped slaves back south. They have no recourse. There's no appeal. There's no court. There's no nothing. So they actually literally will pull some people up. They show up with this Fugitive Slave Act, and they're like, hey, I have a description of an escaped slave. It says right here that they're black. They're 5'10", and it's a dude. You're black, you're 5'10", and you're a dude. So I'm pulling you back. And the dude could be like, I grew up in Boston. <laughs> I, and he has no chance to prove that what he's saying is true. So the North hates this sucker. They hate it. Hey, now, John C. Calhoun gave a speech. Speech isn't super long. It's only like 15 paragraphs. But I thought I'd only have you read two. So would you please take a minute, read through that. When this compromise passes, this is what he says. Before we do this, though, let me, just this first sentence. I have senators believed from the first that the agitation of the subject of slavery, that means talking about slavery, talking about maybe undoing slavery in the South, uh, would if not prevented by some timely and effective measure, end in disunion. You know what dis means, undoing something, and union, of course, is the United States. So the states ripping apart. So go ahead, read the rest of that, and um, answer question 13.
Here's what... Okay, guys. I know. I'm a nerd. Here's... Here's the thing. Okay, at the end of the Civil War, so here's the spoiler, but not for Mr. Box Elder. <laughs> at the end of the Civil War, the South realized that they lost, and so they intentionally rewrote their story to try to make the Civil War be about something other than what it was about. That's why I'm sitting there giving you things like, oh, look, they're talking about slavery. It's going to result in disunion. Because when you look at the primary documents, if we take slavery out of American history, we remove the Civil War too. And that's what it is. But it's not, as a matter of fact, it's so prevalent, it was so powerful that historians actually gave it a name, a name that you'll learn, not for this test, so don't. But it's called the Lost Cause. Because the dude who came up with the idea wrote a book. He called it the Lost Cause. So the Lost Cause theory is that something like states' rights or whatever led to the Civil War, where in actuality that's, that's something that the South invented. And they invented it after the Civil War to make it look like they weren't as bad as they were. I had Southerners in my family who are turning over in their graves. Okay, so let's hit this last one. What's the actual result of this? The actual result is that the Northerners are really ticked off by the Fugitive Slave Act. Like I said before, they're frustrated because they, it really forces them to be enforcers of slavery. They do not like this. It starts to turn even the abolitionists, or even the non-abolitionists, into people who are not fans of slavery. It's going to lead one lady... A lady named Harriet Beecher Stowe is so bothered by it that she writes a fictional novel about it called Uncle Tom's Cabin. Uncle Tom's Cabin is so important in history that when Stowe, the lady who wrote the book, met Abraham Lincoln, he said, so you're the little lady who wrote the book that started this great war. <laughs> yeah, so this is big. This is not a good thing. No. Okay, the second thing it did is what happens with the rest of Louisiana Territory. And look at it on that map. You have Kansas and you have Nebraska, which is eventually going to be Nebraska, a big chunk of Montana, North Dakota, and South Dakota. What are they going to be? Are they going to be slave or free? Ooh, this issue is not resolved. Yeah, so... Compromise of 1850 is going to delay the Civil War, but it's not going to really prevent it. Poor Henry Clay. I'm going to do a side note here, just because you should hear this at some point, because it really matters. Now, I'm not a huge advocate of being super PC. Uh, I think people go over the top. It seems like people wander around hoping to be offended by stupid stuff. But this is one that you should know. I don't think it falls in the category of stupid stuff. Um, here, this old uh, advertisement uses the term colored people. We don't use that term. And here's why. Because in the 1960s, 
when the anti-civil rights people were like turning fire hoses onto black people and being really, really horrible to them, they used the term colored people a whole bunch. So we usually use the term people of color. It's the same reason we don't use, um, say, a swastika on stuff. We don't put it on, it's not because the swastika is inherently evil, but it became associated with something really nasty due to some historical events that I'm hoping you're already familiar with. It's what it represents. So it's the same thing here. So that's why people of color, no problem. But colored people is only a term you want to use if you like getting fired or looking like a racist 1960s bigot person. So I know that you don't run into that and when your English teachers at the middle school teach you like to kill a mockingbird, they don't have that conversation and I wish they would. So, make sense? Okay. Good.